So we are talking about risky faith all month long. Um, specifically, we're studying from Second Kings and the life of Elisha. And so this is part of our anchored teaching core value, just really digging into the scripture. And so if you've missed uh, the last few weeks of May, you can catch them on the podcast and they sort of all link together about the life of Elijah. But what we've learned so far, a quick recap, is that the nations had been asking God for a king um, over them, but the kings kept continuing to fail. And so they were, they were making poor choices. They were not leading the people the way that God wanted them to. And they failed so much that nations were, were even splitting. Um, all kinds of things were happening. There were droughts. There were famines. And so God decides that he is going to show himself through his prophets instead of his kings. That these are the people that will really show what God is like. And so we see this just really strongly in the life of Elisha. And so earlier in our study, um, we, we saw how Elisha... Um, had this sort of moment with his mentor, Elijah, where he saw Elijah um, just go up to heaven, kind of had this moment, and Elisha asked for a double portion. He asked for a greater blessing than his mentor even had. And Elisha had the faith to ask God for an even greater blessing, meaning he believed that God even had more than all the miracles that Elijah had done. And so it's interesting because Elisha is really... Uh, foreshadowing really this preview of Jesus. Jesus, who is the, the greatest of all the prophets. In fact, we see a lot of parallels in Elisha and Jesus's life. Now, let me be clear. There is only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus. But Elisha was um, a preview of what's to come. And so there's all these, these sort of miracles that are parallels. Um, for example, the miracle we're going to talk about today is Elisha brings back from the dead a child. And in Jesus' time, he brought back uh, the, the life of a daughter of a ruler. He brought back his friend Lazarus, if you remember that story. Last week, we talked about how Elisha uh, turned a small amount of oil into an abundance. And, and we also remember in the Gospels that Jesus turns water into wine, enough wine for the whole wedding to drink, and good wine. <laughs> and so we see these parallels. Um, next week, we're going to talk about how Elisha cured Naaman of leprosy. And in Luke 17, Jesus cures 10 lepers. And so we, we see this, this kind of parallel happening. And Elisha had a double portion, but Jesus did even greater things. And I think about um, how amazing it would have been to be, uh, to experience what Elisha did to, to see the miracles and, and watch God meet the needs of the people with, with his, his very own eyes. Can you imagine what that would be like? That God would speak through him and he would say, um, now you're going to be healed of this. And, and before his eyes, he would see that happen. And just as I was doing um, research this week, I, I want to tell you I found something that made my heart beat a little bit faster, and I hope this morning also gets you excited, is that in John 14, Jesus makes a promise to us, and he says this, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. 
And so Elisha is going to Elijah and saying, give me a double portion. Give me a double portion. I want to see double of what you've seen. And Jesus is saying to us, not even a double portion, but even greater things than Elisha. Even greater things than Jesus did. Jesus left, went to heaven, and left his Holy Spirit for us so that we could do even greater things than Jesus did when he did here on earth. Does that get anyone else excited? (laughs) That's what he promises. And he says if you want greater things, if you want God to use you in a greater way, there are some things that you're going to have to adjust in your heart. How many of you this morning would say, sign me up for greater? I want to do the greater things. You're not raising your hand to show me. You're raising your hand to show God this morning. Sign me up for greater. I want the double portion. I want more than the double portion. All right, but you put your hands back down, but get your pen out because there's a couple things that you need to do. There's a couple things you need to remember if you want to be on the list to experience even the greater things. And I'm going to use the text in 2 Kings this morning 4 uh, that talks about Uh, another miracle of Elisha. So read along with me. It says, One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. And she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof, put put in it a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp for him, and then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Let's stop there for a minute. When you read this passage, and you might read it quickly, the decision to make room, make a room for Elisha, maybe seems insignificant at first glance. Because the story goes on to talk about the miracle. But I think that this part is really important because this woman shows that she puts herself in proximity to Elisha's power. She gives him a reason and a place to stay. She, she makes room for God to dwell. And if you want to experience even greater things, I believe that we need to make room for God to move. We need to make room for God to move. This is how faith works. We don't manipulate the presence of God. We, we can't make God move in our life, but we can make room for him to move. We can set up a a chair with a lamp and a table and say, God, anytime you want to show up, I'm ready for you. (laughs) Anytime that you want to come into my life, I will clear the space. We can do that. We can make room for God. Perhaps God isn't moving in your life because you haven't put yourself in proximity to him. Now this means some things. This means that you need to get to the places and the spaces that, that have teaching and worship often. It means that you you got to get to church every single Sunday, not once a month. You, you, you have to uh, surround yourself with people who can speak encouragement and life into you. You have to put yourself in a position that will bring you closer to the presence of God. Have daily time in prayer and daily time in worship. In fact, sometimes making room for God means taking things out of your life. Some of you, your schedule's so rigid and so full, full of really good things, but you have no space for God to change your course. You, you have no space for God to, to show you a need and say, you need to meet that need. You, well, I don't have any time, God. 
You have no space for, um, for God to alter your plans every day. Maybe you need to reevaluate the things that you're investing in. Am I giving God space to move? Am I giving God space to work in my life? So, so the scripture goes on, and it continues in verse 11, and it says that Elisha says to his assistant, Gehazi, uh, this woman has been so kind. How do we say thank you? How can we say thank you for, for giving us this room? And so they ask her, and they say, what can we do for you? And she, she says, I live among my people. And she uses this word in the scripture, gadol, which is a word that really describes uh, being rich, being, ha- having everything she needs. And so she says, I don't, I don't need anything. Um, thank you. I have everything I need. However, Elisha knows that she does not have a son. Now, in that culture, having a son was really important because they took care of you in your old age. They, they maintained the family property. They, they maintained the inheritance. And so life without a son is incomplete. And so Elisha, just like God does, sees the need that we're not even saying out loud and says, you know what, I'm going to give you a son, and at this time next year, God's going to provide for you a son. And, and he says that to the woman. And the woman actually exclaims, don't lie to me. That's what she says. Don't lie to me, because that's a pretty big promise. And I can imagine, and this is the Nicole Schreiber version, but Elisha smiling softly, thinking, you don't know the power of the God that I serve. And the woman finds herself pregnant and has a son within that next year. So God provides a son for this woman who made room for him. And I think what I get out of that, what I want us to see in that, is if you want to experience even greater things, often the miracle will meet you in your weakness. Often the miracle will show up in your weakness. The woman was gadol, that word. She was not poor. She was not desperate. If, 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 Eli- if Elisha would have said, and here's a whole bunch of, of grain for your barn, she would have been like, awesome. Thank you for more. You know, that would not have been meeting her in her desperate place. It's, it's interesting because the Bible has a lot to say about gadol. It has a lot to say about rich people. Because a person's wealth can easily deceive them into feeling self-sufficient. It can easily deceive them into being independent of God. And, you know, quite honestly, I think no matter where you categorize yourself uh, in the, the socioeconomic system, I think in general as Americans, we have to be really careful of this. Because the first sin of Adam and Eve was that they believed that they could do this life without God. They believed that if they worked hard enough, if they got everything they needed, that they could do this life without God. And often, when we have enough possessions, we can forget to depend on God. God can be our plan B. If we can't figure it out, then we'll ask him. And when we have a lot of talent, we can rely on on us to be competent instead of Jesus. I'll find a job. I have a lot of skills instead of being dependent upon what God can give us. It's interesting in Luke 153, It says, God has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. And what he means in this passage is that people 
who are rich in good works or rich in talent or rich in possessions, they don't depend on God in a desperate way and therefore there is nothing God has to give them because they aren't hungry for him. And in those moments, we often try to negotiate with God. We kind of say, well, I'll trade you this for this. And so as it goes, as the scripture says, and as I believe our life experiences show us, is that your weaknesses are the part of your life where God can do the miracle. And so that divorce that you're dealing with, or that health scare, or that addiction, or that failure this week, or that, that hopelessness in a relationship, or that frustration you have with someone in your life, those, those moments where you feel like it doesn't even qualify you to be anything in God's sight, those are the perfect breeding grounds for God to birth a miracle. It's in the desperate places. It's in the weak places. In fact, it's not your weaknesses that keep you from a blessing. It's your strengths that usually get in the way. It's your strengths that tell you you've got it handled. You'll figure it out. You'll just call the guy. And he'll, and he'll help you because you've got connections. It's your strengths that keep you from God showing up in a miraculous way. The miracle will meet you in the weakness. This woman didn't need financial provision, but she needed a child. The weak part of her life was where God provided the miracle. Do you see that? It's interesting. I was reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and um, it said that uh, when Lincoln entered office in 1861, he was just a vastly different man than when he died in 1865 in terms of his relationship with God. This biography was about his spiritual journey. And the difference, this biographer said, in Abraham Lincoln's, um, just his, his, the person of who he was, came in 1862 when his 11-year-old son, Willie, died. And Lincoln says in his, his, uh, his biography that it was one of the first times in his life that Lincoln felt absolutely powerless to do anything about it. But that brokenness taught him to seek a God bigger than himself. That brokenness was this newfound belief that God and his purposes just gave him courage. And you know what came out of that? What came out of that tragedy and what came out of that weakness and that crisis is it gave him the courage to issue the Emancipation Proclamation because he knew God wanted it and he was determined to stand against the whole country if that's what it took. And that was out of the weakness. It wasn't Lincoln was, got stronger, he got smarter, or, or he had more experience. It was the fact that he got weaker and he got more dependent on God. And that allowed him the courage and the strength to stand up against what he knew God wanted. So this morning, are you feeling weak? Are, are you feeling broken? Do you need a miracle? Because I'll tell you what, God in our dependence is where he grows miracles. You may feel like you're not in a very good position right now, but dependence puts us in a position for God to reveal his miracle. So that takes us to verse 18. So God gives this woman a son miraculously, 
And the son grows, grows up and he's in the field working and he comes inside and he complains his head hurts. And the scripture says in verse 20, after the servant had lifted him up, carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then he died. And she went up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God and then she shut the door and went out. The woman's devastated. She made room for God. He provided a miracle. Now the son is dead. None of this makes sense. And so she takes the son back to the place where God did the miracle. She takes the son back up and she puts him in the room that she had made room for the man of God to stay. And she lays him on the bed and she gets on a donkey and she rides to find Elisha. And I can imagine the emotions that she is having. You know those conversations you have in the car on your way to meet somebody? And you're, you know what I mean? You're having the conversation and, no, and I'm going to say it like this. And you kind of go through it. And I can imagine the weeping she's doing and the frustration that she's having and the confusion. And she's probably playing it out. This is what I'm going to say to Elijah when I get there. And she finds him at Mount Carmel, which is about 15 miles away from where she lived. Probably took her two or three hours to get there. And she finds Elisha, and she falls at his feet. And probably everything she planned to say, she, she just begins weeping. And she just begs him to come and save her son. Just come. Come and save my son. And Elisha, in, in, a, in a flurry, sends Gehazi, his servant. He says, take my staff and, and go and lay it on his face, and I'm sure it will heal him. And, and, and the servant goes running off to find the son. But the woman says, no, I'm not leaving you, Elisha. <laughs> I'm staying right here. You got me into this mess, and you're going to get me out. She persists and she insists and she doesn't want Elisha's assistant. She doesn't want Elisha's bag of, of, of tools. She doesn't want his staff. She wants Elisha himself. And remember, Elisha is a representative, a foreshadowing of Jesus. And I, I believe in this scripture, God is saying, if you want to experience greater things, you need to settle for nothing less than Jesus himself. Nothing less. Nothing less than Jesus himself. Now, the playback of Elisha and the Shumanite woman is not a formula of how to get a miracle. I think this is really important. Religion, the spirit of religion, teaches you to approach God on a formula. If you do this, God will do this. My, if I do A, God will respond with B. It happened like that in this story, therefore it will happen like that in my life. God, my life is good enough. I've done enough right things. You owe me a, a healthy family. You owe me a prospering business. God, I gave every day of my life, every day of my tithe. Now I want retirement on the beach. Maybe the mountains, maybe the beach, maybe the mountains. I'll let you know. You know, we, we sort of have this plan, this, this A plus B plan. But let me tell you that gospel faith is not faith in a formula. It's faith in a person. It's not faith in a formula. It's not a staff will lay on his face and it will, he, the boy will come to life. The gospel faith is the fact that that woman went to the person that was representing God and said, I don't want anyone else. I don't want anything else. I want you. I want you. 
I need you to help me in this moment, God. You yourself. And what I love, what I love about this moment is you know what Elisha does? He doesn't say, make an appointment. He doesn't say, uh, let me see who else I can send. He says, let's go. Can two fit on your donkey? <laughs> and they begin to run together to this son that is laying in the space that this woman made for God to move. And the woman, I love in the scripture, the woman actually holds Elijah's ankles and won't let go. And it, it reminds me actually of the woman in the New Testament, if you remember, who grabbed the hem of Jesus' robe when he was walking through the crowd and the disciples were trying to get her to stop, but she grabbed, she fought to touch him. And that just brings me to my next idea about our heart attitude. If we want greater things, if we want greater things, we must be persistent. We must be persistent. In so many places, the Bible teaches us that the blessings of God are appropriated through persistence. In, you know, sometimes in stories that are downright confusing, but God shows us the point really clearly. If you remember in Luke 18, there's a parable um, of the persistent widow. I want to read to you just a portion of it. It says, um, then Jesus told his disciples a parable. So Jesus is telling this to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And he said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adver adversary. And for some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And I love how Jesus is the only one who can actually compare God to a cranky judge, right? He's the only one that gets that, that uh, freedom. But the point is that if a selfish, unrighteous judge will grant answers because of persistent asking, then won't a tender father who hears our every single need move his heart? And God rewards persistent seeking, Greater things require persistent seeking. God, this is what I want and I'm not letting go. And you can drag me around heaven, that's fine. But I'll be back tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And I can just imagine that when we're persistent, even if our prayer needs a little fine tuning of what we're asking for, even if our prayer isn't exactly maybe on point with heaven's goals, that when we are persistent, God happily brews the coffee and excitedly anticipates your knock at the door because all he wants to do is be with you. So come on in. Tell me again. What color Ferrari? All right, just tell me. Just tell me again. Because I hear you and I want you and I want relationship with you. And as you pray and as you're persistent to me, I'm going to show you the desires of my heart and your prayers are going to begin to align with the kingdom. And as the scripture says, that even greater things will come through you because I've left the Holy Spirit on earth. So let's see what happens. We're not even halfway through the story. <laughs> So 2 Kings 4, Elisha reaches the house. The boy's lying dead. I love how the scripture says, on his couch. And he went in, shut the door. It's just the two of them. And he prayed to the Lord. And then he got on the bed and he lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. And as he stretched himself out on him, 
the boy's body grew warm. And Elisha turned away. He walked back and forth in the room. And then he got on the bed. And they stretched on him once more. And the boy sneezed seven times. And he opened his eyes. It's interesting. Just uh, I was doing a little research about the whole laying on top of him, eye to eye, hand to hand. And that was actually a technique in in the ancient world that they would use um, to try to raise people from the dead. It it would transfer life force. It, It was the idea, hand to hand, mouth to mouth, eye to eye. And God himself responds with the restoration of his life. And the child sneezes seven times. And and you know the number seven is used multiple times in the Bible. It's notable for this idea of completion, totality, perfection. Uh, The book of Revelation contains uh, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven angels, seven churches. Sacrifices were often in groups of seven. It's this idea of total healing. He sneezes seven times and the crisis is over and the natural meets the supernatural. And he takes the boy out and he gives her gives him back to the woman. And God shows that what he has started, he will finish. And as I mentioned earlier in prayer today, that God didn't get his people partway out of Egypt. He, he, he didn't get his people halfway through the Red Sea. Philippians 1.6 says, We can be confident that he who began a good work will carry it into completion. So I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what that is for you today, but I do know that what you've been praying for persistently, God has heard you. And he will not start something that he won't finish. And that God has promised us that we will experience a greater thing. And so just to sum up, These principles we talked about today, our hearts need to be prepared for these greater things. we got to make room for God to move. We have to let the miracle meet us in our weakness. We have to settle for nothing less than Jesus himself. And we have to be persistent in our asking and persistent in our seeking. So would you stand today? I want to pray over you. And then I have one last thing for us to do. Father, we come to you this morning And we want to experience the greater things. I know that you saw many of the people this morning raise their hand in the beginning of this message and say, it's me. I want to experience greater things. God, I want to see even the double portion. I want to see even more of the things that you did here on earth because you promised you sent your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. And so, God, we desperately want to make room for you. And I pray right now that you would bring to mind places and spaces that that we need to make room for you, God. Maybe it's things we need to take out. Maybe it's things we need to add in. But God, that you would show us what those are. God, I pray that we could look for the miracle in our weakness. God, that you would help us see our weaknesses differently today. God, that you would help us see those circumstances that are unsolvable and those character flaws we have and those things that we're having a hard time getting a handle around. God, that you would help us see them as moments where miracles can pop up. And God, I pray that we would settle for absolutely nothing less than you yourself, God. 
that we would come to your throne persistently, God, every day and ask and seek and ask straight from you. And God, that you would begin to, to shape our prayers and our needs and our desires so they would align with your heart. And as we do that, that your kingdom would be come to earth as it is in heaven in Jesus' name, that you would change us, that you would change this church, that you would change this city in Jesus' name. God, we love you and we trust you. And it is in your name we pray, amen.